This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. I am Helen Farmer. On today's episode, prepare to be inspired and educated. We are meeting Ghani Suleiman, who committed to completing an Ironman every single day as part of the 30-day Dubai Fitness Challenge, raising money for Heroes of Hope. He was in the studio to explain some of the darkest moments and why he just kept going. Ms. Habiba Al-Marashi, the chairperson of the Emirates Environmental Group, joined us to discuss Clean UAE, what we can be doing for the good of the planet and her involvement, of course, in COP28. And having a deep dive into ADHD, an expert in neuroscience and mental health, Dr. Jogia was taking your questions and explaining some of the latest research, a large-scale study right here in the UAE with the Al Children's Hospital. And it was Dr. Mendoza from Pet Pavilion who was in the hot seat for pets and vets, giving us advice to our furry friends and some special insights for our senior animals. Now, Dubai Fitness Challenge is over, and I think most of us are just happy to have completed it, but others have absolutely smashed it. Ghani Suleiman uh, committed to completing an Ironman every single day for the duration of the 30-day challenge, raising money for Heroes of Hope. And he's in the studio now and he didn't even limp in. He he walked in very happily, very <laughs> healthily. Ghani, how are you? I'm fine. Thank you so much for having me. Tell me what it says on your t-shirt. Oh, <laughs> uh, it says... Uh, uh, you, uh, you owe you, and at the back he says, uh, uh, 30 Ironman in 30 days. 30 Ironman in 30 days. I mean, yeah. this is be- honestly beyond <laughs> my comprehension. For anyone that's not familiar with the concept of Ironman, what mm. kind of distances and disciplines are we talking about? Uh, um, the full Ironman is, consists of uh, swimming, cycling, and running. How far? You're going to swim uh, 3.8 kilometers. You're going to cycle 180 and you're going to run 42.2 kilometers, a full Ironman. Did you do a full Ironman every day for 30 days? Uh, yes, we oh did. <laughs> okay, so the big question, yeah. why? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it must be a, a big why between any, any um, initiative. Uh, my big why was uh, to raise funds for charity uh, to give back to the community and uh, I have been working with uh, Erosor for Hope and uh, I, have been, I, I trained them and um, it's always uh, um, a big moment being with them and uh, it's always touched my heart mm-hmm. and uh, I always want to give more and uh, this is my way of giving because I don't have it physically at all f- financially to give them like the way I want so I always find a way to yeah, like do something and give Here, them. Heroes of Hope is an amazing initiative. It's talking about believers and achievers and helping children of determination. And, and you work, you know, in sport yourself. You're working yeah. with Adidas, you know, ambassador. You you work there and you do an awful lot to inspire children. I think this is inspirational to absolutely everybody. Tell us a little bit about the training that this involved before Dubai Fitness Challenge even started, Ghani. Um, to be really honest um i don't uh, i didn't really train <laughs> very well for it yeah <laughs> um i think uh, I, my goal was to get the bike because i knew that i, ne- uh, I needed a 
the right bike to mm-hmm. do this challenge. So my focus was more on the bike. And um, I, I, Mr. Jamal helped me from uh, Al-Jamal Shafa. He said, okay, but I couldn't get the bike from the giant. And I said, okay, uh, I, I spoke to some couple of uh, people and Mr. Jamal was the only one who said, okay, yeah, I can help you. I will speak with uh, Mr. Fazal. He's the CEO of uh, Trek uh, Dubai. So, so you got the bike. Yeah, so I got the bike with them. Out of the three disciplines, the swimming, the cycling and the running, what is your favorite and your least favorite? Uh, <laughs> I would say my favorite was the running but at some point it become harder <laughs> because i'm already broken from the bike and i think the hardest was the swimming yeah because i don't know how to swim properly so um, uh, I, I think you clearly do you've just proven that you absolutely <laughs> do <laughs> yeah but if you see me swim yeah you, you're gonna laugh at me like uh, i have seen many people laughing at me during the the challenge well <laughs> you're laughing now 30 <laughs> ironman in 30 days i want to learn more i want to hear about the crew, the food, the wear. Yeah. Gani Suleiman is in the studio with us. We're going to be talking all about that and more. Joining us in the studio is Ghani Suleiman. He completed an Ironman every single day as part of Dubai Fitness Challenge, literally 30. <laughs> and I have had a number of people contacting me, sending me your Instagram saying... You need to meet this man. He's amazing. He's an inspiration and he's so humble. And I couldn't agree more with with those descriptions. I've also heard that you taught yourself to swim. Yes, I did. (laughs) How? Where? (laughs) I I did. uh, I taught myself when I wanted to do the first challenge in, I think, the last two years uh, at uh, Kite Beach. Um, So I, I just jumped into the water. So I wanted to do half Ironman for 30 days as well. It, it was during Dubai. But I didn't know how to swim. So, But it was like, like, again, I didn't train for it. I just It just came into my mind and I said, okay, I want to do this. And it was too late. The Dubai Fitness Challenge had to start like uh, two days. And I just, in, in that two days, I just went to Kite Beach and I started um, dumping myself into the water. I was trying to kill myself. <laughs> But you know what? Now you are a swimmer. You're saying you've got a funny style. Who cares? Who cares? Exactly. If it gets you you from A to B, it doesn't matter. You've been raising money for Heroes of Hope and really close to your 50,000 Durham target. So it's not too late to get involved there. Um, Tell us a little bit about the support you've had around you. You know, you've got Coach Lee in the studio there, your colleague Vicky from Adidas as well. It sounds like this has been a real team effort how did people yeah. come together to support you Ghani? yeah um like from day one till to date like this time i'm still saying thank you to each one of them i couldn't like uh, i have an uh, amazing and incredible uh crew during this challenge uh, as you can see on my shirt i wrote uh owe you uh because i was counting on them because when i wanted to do this i reached out some couple of uh uh, company, food company, and th- things like that, and they said we can't support you because it's too dangerous, and we don't want to get involved. So I knew that uh, it's going to be hard, and uh, the only thing in my mind is like, okay, I have such peoples around me, and I owe myself because I promised myself I want to do this, this challenge. I said, okay, I, you owe you, you, nobody owes you anything. 
So you said you want to do this. You have a big why and you have those people around you. So you have to do this. And um, yeah, I I, I, I couldn't say thank you to them. Like uh, I couldn't stop. Like every day I just want to say thank you to them. Were there any moments where you thought this was not a good idea? 30 Ironman in 30 days. (laughs) That's just too much. Were there any, any tough moments? Yeah. If, um, I would say even from day one, uh, I started, like I told you, the swimming wasn't good. The, from day one, I jumped into the water and uh, I was like, oh, oh, what's going on? <laughs> because after the first challenge, I didn't uh, go back to the water for a long time until I decided again to do the, the, this challenge again. And uh, the first day was a little bit hard. And I was like, okay, um, I need to get my uh, my rhythm back. Mm-hmm. Then uh, it took me the first day. It took me more than three hours to swim the the distance. And what, just remind us of the distance. It was at three point eight. Yeah, three point eight. Yeah, it took me like more than three hours to finish because it was up and down, up and down. I needed to get my rhythm back, and then once I get my rhythm back, and it was okay. And during the challenge now, the, from the ten. That's why I start having like a uh, uh, mental and uh, physical problems. Like I have, um, I don't know how they call it, uh, pie uh, under my anus. It was very big. Like anyone that have it couldn't continue the the the, the challenge because I can sit on the in bike. Pain, yeah, saddle, not yeah. your friend. You can't, you can't. But what ke- what kept mm. you going in those moments of pain and anguish? Yeah, from the ten till I finished the challenge is just pain every single day, and uh, I couldn't sit. Like I finish, I will finish the swimming, and uh, Lee will tell me sit, sit. But uh, I can mm. sit, but they don't understand. But I don't want to tell them because they will say stop the challenge, mm-hmm. and there's no way. I, I I didn't want to hear that. So I kept it with myself till I finished. So I didn't tell anyone I was having this. Uh, I can see it. It's like pain in the night after I finish the two hours. Uh, I can, I can't even sleep on the bed. Like I have to stand all the time. And uh, I said, okay, I you I have to do this. I set a goal uh, for myself. Okay, I want to do full Ironman, and I have a big why. I have those children. I can go back tell them, ah, oh, sorry, I, I couldn't have, uh, I can't do it. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I, I don't want to lose my uh, world. Isn't that amazing? The, yeah. power, the power of yeah. the, why. the why. Yeah, it is. It's amazing. Over pain, over, over, that, over that body. It's amazing. We've had a message saying, um, does he get bored? Okay, so that's a good question. So <laughs> on those really long runs in particular, do you listen to any music? Have you got someone running beside you to keep you company and chatting, Ghani? How does it work? Uh, it was difficult for me to have people, and um, during the challenge, I used to go online to say sorry to them that I, I can't have them around because I was so much in pain every single minute, and I don't want to have people around me and then I can give them tension and or being rude to them. So because I'm constantly in pain, I may be rude with someone that which came to your, help never me, your intention. Yeah, which is not my intention. So yeah. that's why I kept being uh, alone. And uh, I have some French friends that join me and uh, he asked me about music because when I started, I wasn't using music. I just, no music, nothing. And from that day, he asked me, at least listen to music. Maybe it, it will help you. And uh, that is from that day. Okay, I said, okay, why not? I, uh, I start 
to use the music otherwise. What so. music? You know I want to know what music. <laughs> yeah. No, it's just um, French music. And sometimes I listen to the Quran as well. Now, I yeah. can't run a bath, never mind 5K. Do you think everyone has got it in them? to run you're a coach do you think you could get me running yeah right now you have a track in the studio <laughs> we do have a track outside yeah, i'm also we wearing high heels going but we can yeah, we, we can make an adjustment of course we can take the heels out and <laughs> just do it on everyone is born to run with some lovely messages coming in saying yeah. what an amazing story of courage whatever the challenge what has come through is this man's attitude and persistence and ambreen saying one word for you iron man yeah. inspirational i can't wait for my twins to join heroes of hope and don't worry I look the funniest in the pool and you can't beat my looks, but Helen is right. <laughs> Who cares? I'm, I suspect by the look in your eye that this isn't the end for you. I no. think, I'm sure, even as you, as you finish that 30th Ironman that you were already thinking about, what next? Are you training for anything? Have you got your, another goal in mind or are you having a much-deserved rest? Um, for now, of course, yeah. There's the list of challenges that I played in the book. Uh, it's not yet finished, <laughs> but for now we just allow to uh, the brain and the body to come down to to have a rest, and then of course we have the next one uh, on board already. There's always a next. Yeah. I've had people asking for your name, your mm-hmm. details. Mm-hmm. It is Gani Suleiman. If you want his details, just send me the word Iron. I'll send you his Instagram. As we said, <laughs> he is raising money for that fantastic organization um, of uh, of Heroes of Hope and donations still open. So if you would like to support that and really acknowledge what an incredible job you've done, you are on Instagram and I do urge you to check that out. Send me the word Iron. I'll send you his link so you can see everything that's been going on. Yeah. So it's been an absolute honor to meet you. Yeah. I'll see you on the track. Yeah. I might be having a croissant <laughs> <laughs> on the beach and you might be having a run. No, you have a track here and you have the air condition, so it makes it a bit easier for no you. Excuse. <laughs> There's no excuse. No excuse, Gani. Thank you so yeah. much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm sure it. we'll be catching up, if not in a year's yeah. time after the next fitness challenge, maybe in between. Yeah, before that. Before that. Gani <laughs> Suleiman, it's an absolute pleasure to have you with us this afternoon. The countdown to COP28, my goodness, we're on the 24-hour less-than countdown now and joining us to talk about what's happening, of course, ahead and all year round with the Emirates Environmental Group is chairperson, Ms. Habiba Al-Marashi. Thank you so much. I know how busy you are. I genuinely do. So thank you for taking the time to come and talk to us today. How are you, Habiba? Thank you very much for inviting me and I'm very well. Thank you. (laughs) Before we start talking about your involvement in COP28, would you mind explaining to everyone here today a little bit about the mission of EEG, the, the vision as well? Yeah. So Emirates Environmental Group, is the first environmental NGO established in the United Arab Emirates in 1991, when the environment was not a topic that was on the agenda Mm, or was discussed in boardrooms or anywhere else. Our main purpose in establishing Emirates Environmental Group is to raise environmental awareness amongst the different societies in the country, and we do that through education, action program, and community involvement. And this is very important for us in a country that we have, mashallah, you know, 204 nationalities. We need to provide this kind of platform, interactive platforms, mm-hmm. where members of the society can have an opportunity to actively participate, to give, 
to um, be involved, to be part, to feel that they are part of it and they belong. And this is where you get the sense of loyalty amongst the different uh, sectors. And that's what you want, isn't it? Even with the next community who might not be planning to be here for a long time, we still want Dubai residents to feel invested, to care about the country. Absolutely. And this is what we do. So we go with our educational programs. Of course, we focus on, on the students in the different age levels. And this is where you are planting the seed, you know, really. Uh, and you see it grow with you. So you will find, you know, students who are five years, ten years, sometimes more until they finish their secondary and they go uh, for higher education. And I'm impressed to see so many of the students nowadays choose to stay in the UAE and finish their uh, undergraduate uh, studies. So being born here, raised here, involved in the different programs, the country becomes part and parcel. It's part of their culture. It's part of their identity. They know what makes us tick. They know what are the challenges that are there, but they know exactly what are the opportunities, what are, what are the wonderful circumstances and, and environment that is surrounding them all over and that they have contributed in achieving that. Yeah, there's a pride in that. Yes. So you, you'll find, you know, um, we have a beautiful program, the Urban Afforestation Program, that we started in 2007, and it's going from strength to strength. We have covered all the Emirates throughout different public places, and we do it in partnership with the relevant government bodies as well as with the private uh, sector. And you will be amazed at how people come and they are so happy and engaged and want to plant. And then they go and see the same place after two years, after three years, after five years. They find where is they, where are their placards and they see the tree has grown, matured, giving fruits. So they understand how they have been part of the ecological development of the country. I think I think what's really important to note is a lot of people want to do something. We want to contribute, but sometimes we just don't know how. Yes. Does that make sense? And I think yes, that, yes, I think we, we hear that, is, that a lot. You know, it's like you know, I want to give back, but it's complicated. I want to contribute, but I haven't got time. And I think what you do so well is kind of put these hands together of saying we've got willing volunteers, we've got a problem that needs addressing, or we've got an opportunity here, and and kind of bring it all together so well. Tell us about Clean UAE. What are you working on right now, Habiba? Yes, um, thank you very much. <laughs> As you know, if you come to our office today, especially because we received, you know, more than 15,000 T-shirts and caps. Right. And that has to be segregated according to the size, according to the emirate, according to, for Dubai, you know, every single company, school, family, it will be all packed for them, ready. Uh, the clean UAE uh, this year is the 22nd cycle. It means 22 years we are doing it. Gosh. And, and that is very important, really, to have the consistency in a program that we are doing. And this is where these people identify and put it in their agenda and planners. They know, okay, this time of the year, we have this program. So I started with one day, 12-12-2002. Today, it is more than 10 days event. So we will start exactly after the celebration of the National Day, 2nd and 3rd. On the 5th, we are starting the Clean UAE. And this time, we will be uh, starting with, from Emirate of Fujairah. So how can people get involved and, and what are you going to be doing? On the website, beautifully, you will find a form, Google form that you register. The moment you register, it gets to the organization. Uh, the team will reach out to acknowledge that you have uh, been registered, go through the logistical requirements. And then, of course, they give you more details of the Emirate of your choice. 
uh, I know for a fact until the last update I received from the team was um, 57,000 something. <gasps> That's incredible. Okay. Yeah, but our target this year is uh, is uh, sixty five thousand. Of course, it is. You're an ambitious <laughs> woman. So you've got different dates across the different Emirates, as you said, yes. starting on Tuesday, the fifth of December, running through to Saturday, the sixteenth of December, here in Dubai. And you can do this as an individual. You can do this as a corporate, as a family, yes, as an academic institution yeah. as well. Yeah, a way of giving back. Lastly, before I let you go, because I'm sure. You've got a meeting to be in, a conversation and probably some T-shirts to be packing. What are you going to be saying at COP? What are your plans for COP28, Biba? Um, Of course, it's a beautiful time, really, to be a very proud moment for every single person in the UAE, for the UAE to be hosting this wonderful uh, program. Um, We are engaged in different uh, levels. We will be um, in a panel, uh, organizing, co-organizing a panel with UNIDO. Um, there is a panel I will be speaking at uh, with uh, Global Investors for Sustainable Development Alliance. I am moderating a session that is being organized by Expo. We have, uh, uh, I'm speaking in a panel with SEED. We have a panel at the Slovenian. We have organized a panel at the Slovenian I pavilion. Go, I need to go back to the Slovenian pavilion because I went there in the summer and I was completely blown away by what an incredible country, yeah. the attitude of them. It was just amazing and there's a beautiful exhibition going on as well and then the last thing we have a unique program which is called uh, student ted talk okay and that will take place on the 11th of uh, december and these are the students who have won in our inter-school environmental public speaking competition in the month of april so the winning students will be addressing the adults and everybody at the green zone the next generation um is it too late to sign up no it's not too late it's not too late if you go there's registration on the green zone and you can register and get there and in terms of clean uae are you still taking volunteers there yeah 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 thank you so much as i said it is it is busy time for, for yes. those who are working in sustainability environments so thank you for coming in and shining a light on the work that you do you know not just when we are hosting the biggest program for the yes. environment in the world but year round at the emirates environmental group habiba uh, and Pelham Rashi, i really appreciate your time thank you very much for your support my absolute thank pleasure you. enjoy cop 28 you're an absolute inshallah. asset to it thank and you looking forward to more engagement from your side of course thank you, thank you. i'll be there with my letter picker on the 16th We're taking a deep dive into ADHD in the latest research now as we're joined by an expert in neuroscience and mental health. Dr. Jogajogia is with us, Associate Professor of the College of Natural and Health Sciences here in Dubai at Zaid University. He does have a PhD in the field of mental health and cognitive neuroscience from King's College. He's been lecturing, conducting research. He was at Aston University in Birmingham before moving to the UAE seven years ago and recently published the largest scale study on ADHD in the UAE in collaboration with Al-Jalila Children hospitals so who better to have in the hot seat i guess my first question is why why is this an area that you've it sounds like you've dedicated your life's work and an awful lot of time and research to what captured your attention around it yeah thank you so much for having me on uh, i'm a fan of the show so it's really nice to be on the other side yeah welcome yeah really cool um why mental health because that's the area that i'm really interested in um 
I'll tell you the, the, the short story and then you tell me if you want a longer answer. Okay. I watched Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> okay, right. So just to kind of, just to kind of a, a peek behind the curtain in the studio, right? So on my right hand side, I've got five screens. And in kind of mid afternoon, about four o'clock, the one on the right puts on a movie and it's always the least appropriate <laughs> film ever. And it had Silence of the Lambs on last week and I'm trying to yeah. concentrate on the show and I've got Hannibal Lecter just yeah. like looking at me from three o'clock. So was it a case of seeing mental health problems brought to life? Yeah, exactly. And that just fascinated me. I thought, how, how is this character so real? And how are they trying to understand criminal behaviour, but also with a mental health disorder in there? Mm-hmm. And that kind of sparked my interest. And then psychology uh, during college years in the UK uh, had a brilliant teacher who was just who would break uh, really complex theories and data down um, and in a really fun and friendly manner. It wasn't one of those where you'd fall asleep. Yeah, oh, I, had a few, I had a few of those in my time. Yeah. And now, in, I mean, the conversation's changed an awful lot since, you know, we've been at university. Yeah. Um, when we think about that, uh, I think the pandemic was something of a, an accelerant in that. And I'm, I'm, I'm always keen to take a positive out of the pandemic. And I'm glad that a lot of people are being equipped with the language that they might need to express how they're feeling and, and maybe even struggling. And I feel like ADHD was actually one one term in particular that an awful lot of people and parents in particular started to learn about more, having had the kids around them, you know, trying to do distance learning. I've had friends here in the UAE who, you know, really came up against it with their kids during distance learning, did research, found out as ADHD and then self-diagnosed themselves as adults as a result of it. And we have seen a real explosion in it. And you, as I said, have been turning your attention to ADHD more recently. Before we start talking about the diagnosis and treatment and answering questions that have been coming in, um, would you mind explaining ADD, ADHD, and maybe some of the confusion around those definitions? Sure. So ADD is an outdated term. So ADHD is the new version that we stick with now, and it involves more components of ADHD. So ADHD stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. The two that people usually jump on is attention and hyperactivity mm. as being two classes of symptoms that are, are relevant to that disorder. But actually, there's a third one, which is impulsivity and not having control of behavior or thought processes. And that's quite a big one in ADHD. And sometimes it goes um, kind of underlooked. Well, and, could you give us some examples of what that might look like? And, with, and with, you know, yours, it was the children's hospital that you were working with. So in, in children, what, I mean, aren't all children quite impulsive? That's true. And that's why it's quite, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm always on the conservative side of overdiagnosing. I think we overdiagnose a lot mm-hmm. um, based on assessments that are not very fine tuned to ADHD, to those three classes of symptoms that I've mentioned. Impulsivity in terms of impulse, impulse control, if you see that in a child, it might look very different in an adult because it does kind of transform across years as well. Um, but on, on the, on the, as a basic description, it's not being able to control your movement. So maybe sitting, uh, in, like jerking, in, in jerking or... fidgeting, hand movements, that okay. kind of thing, which again, most children do that. So it can be quite normal, Mm -hmm. but I I think when it starts affecting uh, daily activities, when it becomes uh, a disorder, you're not functioning in school uh, as as you should or at work, Mm -hmm. that's when it becomes a problem. Do you look back at your own school days with the knowledge you have now and think, oh my goodness, there were some some kids in my class that probably really needed a lot more help than they were getting instead of being labelled as naughty? 
you know what? I should I shouldn't confess this on national radio, but I was probably one of those. Do you think kids. it was? I, I think I was one of those kids because I wasn't challenged enough, mm-hmm. um, and I, and I think um, teachers at that point didn't know what to do with students who were at different levels. Yeah. And I'm not saying I was higher at a higher level than anybody else. I but mean, I, I mean, given your intellect and the work you've gone on to do, I suspect you probably were. <laughs> but but so I I would you know I would get bored quite easily, and mm-hmm. I think now the education systems are a lot better. You see fantastic resources here in the UAE and the UK. UK as well. Um, so I think they're going to be, you know, better places. But did I identify that in children? Do I look back? Potentially, yeah. yeah. I do look back and think maybe it was somewhere. But I think that's probably the wrong message sent out because as, as, a, as a scientist, as a psychologist, I'd always say you need to do a battery of testing, assessment, measurement, and then you get that diagnosis. That's what we're going to be talking about next. Common myths and misconceptions around ADHD. If you've got any questions for Dr. Jugga Jogia, who's speaking to us now, uh, Associate Professor at Zaid University, uh, PhD in the field of mental health and cognitive neuroscience, and passionate around that topic of ADHD, and has done some really excellent recent research, which we're going to be diving into too. Dr. Jigga Jogia is with us today, Associate Professor at the College of Natural and Health Sciences at Zayed University. He's recently published the largest scale study on ADHD in the UAE in collaboration with the Al Jalila Children's Hospital. Um, and I wanted to ask you um, whether it is so-called experts on social media or indeed common questions you get from clients, from friends around the dinner table, parents at the school gate... The, the platform is yours, Doctor. What myths would you like to bust about ADHD? Uh, biggest one, I'd probably say, is uh, ADHD means you've got a naughty child. Uh, that's a huge one. Um, it's not a naughty child. They, they don't have, you know, um, low intelligence. That's another massive myth. Um, and I think that's where this term neurodiversity comes about. And I'm kind of on the fence whether we want to call it neurodiversity or a neurodevelopmental disorder, which it is classed as. Um, there are changes in the brain. I think you have heightened abilities in, in certain areas, but also deficits, hence mm-hmm. the name. It's mm-hmm. an attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Um, and, I, and I try and stay away from giving personal advice or any counselling. But I think the relevant information can be sought out and it's about empowering parents, about empowering adults who might think they have ADHD as well to kind of go and find out the right answers from relevant places like the APA or the BPS and there's lots of resources online now we can go but it has to be the right resources not a uh, not somebody who claims to be an expert because they've watch silence in the lambs i shouldn't really say that but that's all they've done in their life but maybe they've you know gone on and, and done some research in the area and i think research is so important if we think about r&d research and development you know we, we can see how phones have developed we can see how cars are developing it's the same thing in mental health there needs to be development there needs to be a lot of research and that's where we find out how to be more sensitive when we assess how to diagnose better, and ultimately how to treat these conditions. Tell us about the study that you did recently here in the UAE. What was the focus of the research you were doing? Yeah, so I was prompted to kind of do this study because, again, I was hearing a lot of myths around and uh, social media kind of propagates these ideas as well, unfortunately. And a lot of people go home with the wrong ideas. Um, And this is not to have a pop at medical professionals or inclusion teams at schools who deal with things like ADHD and mental health issues a lot. It's to say that, again, um, you need to have a scientist practitioner model at play. And what I mean by that is they're they're all practitioners. 
they're, they're doing their day-to-day job in seeing patients and seeing clients and seeing students. But sometimes the, the science aspect, the research and development is lost. And it's lost because there's lots of barriers to research. Funding's the major one, infrastructure, competency. Do you have the training to, to look at MRI scans? Mm-hmm. You know, it took me years and years and years. And there's still so much development in, in that training. Um, so that's very difficult. But seeing that, I said, either I can just talk about this and discuss it and, and, and kind of be part of the problem, or I can find solutions. So a few things I did, I developed a degree in the UAE at American University in Dubai. You developed Psychology. a degree? Yeah, just, you know, Why bored, not? Bored one day. So what's it called? <laughs> the uh, Bachelor of Arts in Psychology. Um, wow. So actually it was, it was in part with somebody else and then I helped launch it. And then here at Zayed University, I've launched a counselling MSE. So we're trying to create the, the next generation of mental health professionals who will be more qualified in terms of that scientist practitioner model. And I, I linked up with clinicians who I feel are doing it the right way. Um, and Dr. Misha Sultan is one of the um, child and adolescent psychiatrists working at Al Jadila Children's Hospital. He also has an education role, so he works for the Mohammed bin Rashid University of Medicine. Again, uh, a, a medical facility that I feel is doing things in the right way. Mm-hmm. They're very research active, they're engaged. When I used to work for King's College London in the UK, I lectured at their medical school. Um, and they invited me as a psychologist to come and talk to them about psychological therapies, understanding of the brain. And, and, and we're seeing that now in the UAE, which is brilliant. Um, so that pushed me to kind of conduct this study. Any surprising findings, Dr. Jigar? The, the major finding is, and as you've said, it's one of the largest studies to be done here. 428 pediatric patients uh, diagnosed with ADHD at Al-Jalila. We've got about 37 different nationalities, wow. which you know, is representative of, of and, the sample. And what kind of age spread? Um, we've got kids from five onwards, and we're kind of looking at early adolescence to late adolescence as well. So up to about 17, 18 years of age. Um, and what we're, what, what we're trying to do is not to try and run before we can walk because everybody loves MRI and fMRI and neuroimaging. But I, I kind of sat down with the clinicians there. And I said, look, we really need to understand the data. What, 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 who are you seeing on a day-to-day basis? What does ADHD look like here in the UAE? Because, again, we've got to contextualize it to our population here. There's no point always taking things from other countries and particularly in the West where we look for um, best practice, but we've got to create those, uh, those better standardised norms ourselves. So one of the biggest findings that, that we discovered was that three quarters of our study sample, so literally a majority of the sample, have at least one comorbid condition, so at least one disorder that co-occurs with ADHD. Such as what? Autism is the biggest one, ASD, in children. And then when you're getting to kind of late adolescence, adulthood, it turns into anxiety. Which kind of, again, intuitively it makes sense, but until you do research, you can't quantify, you can't yeah, it's, qualify. It's, it's intangible. Yeah. Uh, joining us in studio today, and on hand, we are going to go to the text line next. I've got a number of messages coming in for Dr. Joga Jogia, Associate Professor at the College of Natural um, Health Sciences at Zayed University. He's lectured in the UK. I've just been talking now about that study in collaboration with Al Jalila Children's Hospital. <laughs> We're taking a deep dive into the latest research here in the UAE on ADHD with the man behind that study. It was in collaboration with the Al Jalila Children's Hospital and speaking now with Dr. Jigga Jogia, Associate Professor at the College of Natural and Health Sciences at Zayed University here in the UAE. Um, the text lines are open. We've got a number of people we're going to be speaking to in a minute. In a minute, it is to hear. How can we help you this afternoon? 
Yes, hi, uh, Helen. Uh, hi, everyone. So I have a question about uh, ADHD in kids. So uh, my question is that at what age should we check with a psychiatrist or a, or a psychologist uh, for uh, ADHD diagnosis? Great question. It's something that was on my list as well to hear. So thank you for getting to that. You mentioned before, Doctor, that your study looked at children up from the age of five. And um, when we're thinking about signs and symptoms in that younger age group, what can point to ADHD and when should you start to seek a diagnosis? So I should say that in the UK, I think we're quite conservative in, in diagnosis and we're quite careful. If we're classing these as neurodevelopmental disorders, we've got to think what is normal neurodevelopment, right? What, how does the brain develop normally? And then if we're seeing abnormal changes in that and we're observing behaviour, we're observing uh, schooling reports, parenting reports, potentially even doing MRI scans if, if the clinician sees there's a need for it, then we should go and diagnose. So that I, I feel there shouldn't be an age cutoff. Mm-hmm. You can go if you feel there's a, a that there's a number of issues and they centre around attention deficits or impulsivity and hyperactivity. But I would say to every parent out there, being a parent myself, that it's normal to have a child who doesn't pay attention sometimes, mm-hmm. who is hyperactive and who is impulsive as well. Tahir, can I ask, are there any signs or symptoms that you're particularly worried about or is it just a general question? No, it's, it's just a general question. So, I mean, uh, because, you know, most of the kids is, these days are, you know, really hyperactive and mm-hmm. very active. So, uh, you know, there is a very thin line between whether it's uh, it's a normal behavior or it's, it could be a sign of ADHD. Totally agree. I think that's where a lot of confusion comes into play, especially when we think about, you know, screen time pandemic certainly hasn't helped i think there's a lot of kind of muddied waters there so uh, thank you for answering asking that question really really appreciate it and wishing you a lovely afternoon ahead i've had a message here saying any relation between adhd and stuttering and can you cure stuttering if you address the adhd is that a link that's been identified um there's subtle links between kind of twitches and you know involuntary movements and um tourette syndrome which is obviously a a diagnosed um uh, outburst in in linguistic uh, ability um, but m- more so than that, we're noticing things like um, autism and, and, again, sleep, which we were having a little bit of a discussion about uh, off-air. So those things are comorbid at, at a higher rate mm-hmm. compared to other ones. If And, and again, we, can't, we don't fix ADHD. It doesn't go away. It's something that you're, that you're with, and you learn to kind of um, appropriate your behavior and, and your thought processes yeah, and to work, use techniques. Yeah, yeah exactly, to, so the world can work with you rather than, yeah. rather than against you. Exactly. Um, so Julie's been in touch um, asking exactly that um, about sleep deprivation, so we're going to try and get her on the line. Um, so when we're talking about treatment then is that the wrong word is it about, is it about management how do you what what kind of languages do you use around it so there's two schools of thought um and again if you speak to a medical doctor they're going to come at it from a medical point of view and looking at the biological model not all of them i think there are some brilliant clinicians again i've worked with many here in the country and abroad uh, and they will see it from um a, a three-point perspective the bio the psychological and the social so biopsychosocial approach putting them all together and saying What's, what's happening at the neural level in terms of the brain or genetics, but what's also happening in terms of their psychological functioning, in terms of learning, memory, sleep. Mm-hmm. And then what's happening socially? If you've got a low economic uh, status, if you know, uh, there's um, trouble at home, abuse, all those things can factor in as mm-hmm. well. Sometimes what you're seeing is a normal child. There could be issues happening in the school as well, such as bullying and so on. And, and the reactions that a child has 
could be normal for that context. Context yes. is so important. And I think it's very wrong to just throw out labels uh, without measuring that. And again, it comes back to the assessment. It's so important before diagnosis to have a proper assessment done. Well, let's talk about exactly that. A message here from a listener saying, our 10-year-old um, is high-functioning autistic and has a learning assistant at school who steps in when needed. He still struggles often to focus on tasks and core subjects and we're in the process of getting him reassessed for ADHD. Would you mind demystifying a little bit about that assessment because as soon as people start talking about oh you need a you know a pediatric neurologist or you need to speak to a child psychiatrist I think it's very natural normal for a parent to go this sounds really serious and a bit scary and I'm not sure I want to put myself in that room what can you point to what might happen during assessment what are some of the questions that might be asked yeah. or behaviors observed and I think what, what we should say is we're, we're, we're in the UAE and we're a little bit spoiled here because we do have a lot of these specialities and expertise on tap. And we're not looking at a six-month waiting list. That's it. That's exactly it. So, and, and I know we, we had a neighbour who, uh, who had a son who had a footballing injury, a concussion. And if that was in the UK, yeah, you're right, probably a, a while to wait before he's seen and they wouldn't get an MRI scan done straight away. Whereas here, it's done straight away and then sports physio gets involved, you know, neurologist gets involved mm-hmm. and it does sound more serious than sometimes it needs to be. Um, you should be looking out for warning signs and so on. With ADHD, um, we've got to think about what the best assessment protocol is, what is best practice. But there's a number of things you can do. First of all, it should just be a basic clinical interview. Sit down, have a chat with the child, with the parents, potentially with teachers as well, because that is an, is an information gathering tool, that clinical interview. Mm-hmm. And I always describe this to my students when I'm talking to them about mental health and uh, psychopathology, is it's a funnel approach. So you start off very broad, get lots of information from different areas, and then wind down to a diagnosis. If you go in there after one hour and say it's ADHD, you've done something wrong. Or there's been a confirmation bias and you're looking for that. Um, So that message from Julie saying, how does sleep deprivation play a big part in ADHD and does a child's diet affect the condition? Yeah, so the study that we did with Al Jalila, which is published in uh, Global Pediatric Health, does identify sleep problems as well as things like learning disorders and language problems that are comorbid with ADHD. Now, does one instigate the other uh, or they, are they co-occurring at the same time? We really don't know until we do more research into this. And again, facilities, do we have sleep labs that we can you know, put your kids in and we can monitor them? Do we have a live EEG monitoring? That, that, that's some of the barriers that we face when we're trying to do research. Um, it, you know, just to compare this to where I was in the UK, I was at the Institute of Psychiatry Right bang next to me was an MRI unit. There was a genetics lab next door, an addiction <laughs> centre behind, King's College Hospital. It was really well set up. The infrastructure was there. And the clinicians actually had a day in the week where they would be doing research. They would be identifying how can we get better assessment? Mm-hmm. What other treatment modalities are there? Here we are hard pressed for time in every single job that we do. Yeah. And it's not to lay blame at anybody's door. It's to say... We need to provide better infrastructure, funding, support, training. We're doing that. Coming back to the sleep, though, I think Mm. um, I've had a a number of conversations about this, that that, children have been diagnosed with ADHD when it actually has been a sleep disorder. It's been you know, sleep apnea or, you know, they're doing more mouth breathing and they're not getting that proper REM sleep that's allowing them to concentrate at school the next day. And then they've kind of got ants in their pants and they're up and down and they're, you know, maybe they're falling asleep at school the next day and all, all these different things. It, it must be very, very hard to separate some of the symptoms. 
Absolutely. And in terms of neurodevelopments, we know sleep is so important. It's vital to kind of growth. Um, it's vital to consolidate memory and actually help you with attentional resources the day after. You'll know this as, as an adult. If you've had a bad night's sleep, you're kind of groggy. I'm the foul. Next yeah. <laughs> You don't want to be around me. Oh, absolutely, but, I'm, I'm exactly the same. But yeah, more you know, more emotional, more impulsive, yeah. making worse food choices. You know, yeah. there's so many different yeah. things that come and, into and play. Food was the other thing that I think the caller or the SMS came in and, and talked about. Of course, diet again is very important. There's there's lots of potential causes of all of our mental health conditions. It's important to say we don't know of one single cause that we can say. This causes ADHD, this causes bipolar disorder. So again, we have to have that broad approach when we're thinking about assessment and then dwindle it down to a diagnosis. For anyone that wants to find out more about the work you're doing, uh, Doctor, what's the best way of getting in touch or reading the report? How yeah. can we get? In, how can so we reach out? If you log on to jogiagroup.org, so it's J-O-G-I-A group.org, that's my website. You've got a list of publications, recent things that I'm doing, um, I do some work with the Khalifa Foundation and we work with C20 and G20 leaders, Ajalila, of course. Um, and there's lots of different research that, that, that's going on from art therapy um, to, you know, diagnosis of ADHD. And we're looking at interventions as well. There's a new project right now that's looking at mindfulness and how that could be advantageous for ADHD. So there's lots of research. We're doing the right things here in the UAE. Um, there's always room for improvement. There's always, always room for more. And I'm, I think it's conversations like this are just so useful for, you know, sparking interest for developing more research um, and certainly helping people who've been in touch on the SMS. Thank you so much, Doctor. It's been Pleasure. really, really lovely. We'll, we'll, of course, revisit this topic. We'd love to have you back in the coming months because judging by the number of messages, an awful lot of people concerned and curious for more information. Uh, Dr. Jigajogia. This content is for informational purposes only. If you would like to seek medical treatment, please contact a certified healthcare provider for personalised advice and diagnosis. You're listening to Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan, where the number one ingredient is always high-quality salmon, lamb, turkey and chicken. Fantastic to have you with us and great to be joined in the studio by Dr Mendoza from Pet Pavilion. How are you, Doctor? Very good on yourself. Yeah, I'm really well. We're going to talk about Gary the Garage Cat in a minute. But before we get to that, we've got Elisa on the line. How are you, Elisa? It's so nice to chat again. Oh, I'm surviving. Oh, <laughs> <your> well, <laughs> you are one of the absolute champions when it comes to trapping, neutering, releasing cats. You've got such a big heart and you take such great care of those of those animals, cats and dogs. And you've got a question about your your older, older dog. Tell us what's going on. Um, so they were adopted seven years ago from the Stray Dog Center. So they're going on eight right now. And the brother... Um, they're Saluki Labrador mixes, and the brother has two lumps. Like, it used to be one lump, and we thought that it would go away. But now there's two of them. Um, they don't seem that rigid and hard, uh, and I'm really confused about it. <laughs> okay. Because as soon as as soon as soon dogs or cats reach a certain point, you start panicking. Mm-hmm. I know. I've got a seven-year-old and a ten-year-old dog, so our dog at the minute has got a big lump on his on his hip, and it's getting bigger and bigger. And it's not restricting his movement; it's just a big fatty lump. But we've had, had a, we did get a biopsy done on it because I was worrying as well, Doctor Mendoza. When it comes to lumps on the neck, I mean, obviously, Lisa, you know, worrying it's the worst. What could it be? What can we rule out before getting to that? So when they get these type of issues, it doesn't necessarily say cancer. 
but it is true that it's necessary to rule it out. Great thing that she's telling is that when you touch it, it's not like very hard or very attached. Normally, when there's uh, malignity signs uh, that could indicate a cancer, that's one of the things that they are very attached because they infiltrate into the inside. On this case, it doesn't seem like that. Um, it could be many things, but what I would recommend is, first of all, monitoring the size. How do you monitor the size? By taking a, by taking photos, for example, from here to the next two weeks. Um, if you are very concerned because, for example, those lamps uh, are getting uh, uh, ulcers or, or they are getting um, some guns on that, I would go directly to the veterinarian because you could get a secondary infection that is going to worsen the condition. Okay. But uh, in case you want to be 100% sure, there, there are two things that you can do, ultrasound and if not, a microbiopsy. That could be the, the two things that I would do, at least to rule out things. Which is what we did for Jarvis Cocker Spaniel. He had a he uh, had a little shaved patch on his back leg for a while, um, and they said it could be a trip to the vet just to just to rule out and hopefully help. Um, your your panicking about that old boy. Um, wishing you and all of your furry friends, the many that you have. Um, all the very best. Thanks, Lisa. Uh, Dr. Mendoza, we are talking senior pets in particular today. As I said, I've got a seven-year-old and an eight, no, ten-and-a-half-year-old. I love a senior pet, I have to say. And I'm, I'm always a big champion for adopting them because you know their personality. You know what you're getting, if that makes 100%. sense. 100%. And many people, you know, they prefer to, to adopt puppies because they don't know how great they are uh, adult or senior uh, dogs. First of all, they are super trained many times. They they just gave without expecting anything on return. Super grateful. Yeah. We adopted our old, old dog, Lizzie, when she was eight. And she was only with us for about three and a half years. But I feel, and I, I really mean this, I could cry now thinking about her. She was the most amazing dog. That it was just an absolute privilege to give her some really great years towards the end. And she looked at me, no disrespect to my husband, who I don't think is listening, it was like soulmate stuff. It really was. It was pure love, unconditional love. She was just amazing. So if you do have the chance to bring an old an old dog or old cat into your life. Exactly. There are some considerations you need to make when it comes to taking care of them. What about supplementation? What would you recommend when it comes to, would you count seven as senior? Well, right now, I don't think seven is a senior. Eight is, uh, dogs are, and cats, now they, they tend to live older and older. It's like, almost like humans. And um, I wouldn't say seven years old now a senior because many of them, they live up till 12, 15 even. And um, on the other hand, there are two things when I adopt uh, or when I am fostering a, a, a senior animal that I do. First of all, do a health check like that, make sure everything is fine. And uh, about supplements, me, I really like to use antioxidants. For example, uh, uh, um, foods that they have uh, antioxidants like turmeric, for example, they are super good. They prevent many things. They prevent the aging. The mitochondrial oxidation um, is going to be reduced as well. So there are a lot of things that is going to help in the muscle, um, in in the respiratory system as well. So like anti-inflammatory properties as well. Yeah, exactly. And and it is really, really good. Natural products that, again, we know they are not going to harm the animal. Obviously, I mean, everything in measure, don't take the, the whole pot and just throw it there. But uh, but they are super helpful. And uh, something else that they, for senior dogs, those that they have uh, some joint issues, I mean, what I do recommend uh, is adding foods that they have omega-3 and omega-6, but also those that they have uh, um, aminosaglic- aminosaglicans or uh, something that you can add to as well, those that they have um, uh, chondroitin sulfate. 
So I mean, these words mean nothing to me. So what, what, what would we do? Would we ask the vet for this? Is it something you can buy? What yeah, exactly. That's something that you can buy by the vet. But okay. also there are certain foods uh, that they have it already. For example, cartilage. Um, cartilage has a ton of those things that basically they are, they are going to integrate it very well. We cannot give it on huge amounts on once, but when we give it properly, there are natural products that they are going to help super well also. Um, dehydrated food, uh, like, um, you know, uh, tendons, uh, uh, tendons, uh, uh, pieces of muscle or things like that, they are really good, of course, without exceeding the, the protein, because on a senior, what we don't want to do is hyperprotein uh, diets that they are going to affect the kidneys. But on measure, they are super good. Oh, see, a whole new world for our senior pets. Uh, Dr. Mendoza with us today from Pet Pavilion. We've had messages about cats and Christmas trees. Uh, also about a diet versus diatus. Hussein's asking about, uh, about the cats there. This is Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan, groundbreaking science, life-changing nutrition. Dr. Mendoza is joining us from Pet Pavilion. How do you fancy going to the tax line? Sorry? Should we take some questions? Uh, yeah, 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 of course. Okay. I'm super interested in them. <laughs> so let's go. We've got loads. Okay. Going to try and get through as many as we can. Yvonne, a very timely question, because my Christmas tree is hopefully going up this weekend, saying we're bringing home a new kitten next week as a new bestie, hopefully for our resident adult cat. The adult cat is used to the Christmas tree. She likes to knock the baubles off and chase them around, which is fine. But I'm worried a kitten is going to climb or chew the tree. With this in mind, what type of tree is safer? Real or artificial? I don't know what to do for the best. Any tips? Yvonne, first of all, Yvonne, send me a picture, please. We want to see, we want to see pics of the pets and, and at the Christmas tree. Um, yes, common, common dangers in the home at this time of year. Christmas tree is probably top of the list. What do we need to know about cats and trees? Yeah, actually, I had that issue before, so I, I'm going to talk about my own experience. So my cat used to go really on the, on, on the tree. And the problem is when climbing, they used to uh, bend it and then it was falling over. <gasps> and... Um, the problem was uh, those Christmas balls, which are super nice and everything, they were breaking. Oh, no. So what I recommend for a cat at least, get them plastic instead, crystal or, or other material that may break super easily. That could be the first thing. And Sec- nice heavy base as well. Exactly. <laughs> my, on my case, I could attach it to the ground, so it wasn't bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you cannot do that, put something heavy on top and... Honestly, I would recommend more plastic than, than those natural ones because sometimes they are going to start to try to buy the leaves or things like that. On, on the plastic ones, they, they have it a little bit more difficult because they are better attached. Makes so you, you may have less issues. Tinsel, apparently a bit of a danger for cats. Uh, it is. Many of us I've spoken to have done some tinsel extraction. Have you had to do with this in your time? Actually, yes. In, uh, when I was in Belgium, uh, that was a, a fairly common issue. Um, me, on, on my case, was everything attached to the tree on a way that it cannot leave. Mm-hmm. And listen, next year, when you try to put the Christmas tree, you just take it again. It's not as beautiful as the tradition of, of, uh, of putting everything, <laughs> but it's going to be much quicker, much cleaner, <laughs> and your cat is going to be healthy. So, yeah. Okay. Hope, Yvonne, please send us photos of your pets. We, um, we'd love to see them, and hopefully they will be best friends. Um, let's stay with cats because Zane's been in touch about urinary care for feline cystitis. Mm-hmm. It's all glamour, isn't it? It's all, it's all glamorous as a pet owner. <laughs> Saying my boy had an episode uh, a week ago and again last week. He was fortunate to get away without any kind of catheter but has had to be sedated twice and his bladder emptied by manipulation. The vet has suggested a change of diet. Any recommendations and will that actually make a difference? 
So, yes, I'm assuming that we are talking about felon cystitis, the, the interstitial one, which actually is also called idiopathic. Idiopathic means that we don't know the cause. The cause is unknown. And oh, um, so, you, so there, there can be several... Like stress or something? Or? Many things, many things. So basically, uh, an interstitial means that it is on the interstitium, the area where it happens. And um, as we don't know exactly the cause, what we try to do is modify the environment to make things easier. So it's true that certain diets, for sure, they are going to help. There's also uh, those uh, foods that they have like natural anti-inflammatories, they usually help as well. Second thing that we need to make sure that the, that the cat is drinking enough water, we don't want to concentrate that urine mm -hmm. uh, because sometimes they have difficulties. And if uh, there's more viscosity on that, on that urine, it's, it's going to be more difficult to pass it. So good hydration, good food. Uh, the prescription uh, from the veterinarian for sure is going to be good. There are uh, several brands that they have also uh, uh, for urinary issues uh, um, uh, prescriptions. I would go for them for sure. And again, as they are idiopathic on this one, I believe we're talking about the idiopathic one. Uh, as we don't know the exact cause, we're going to try to treat the symptomatology, mm -hmm. including the pain. So sometimes we're probably we will need uh, to do some uh, uh, to give some pain relief as well. Okay, hope that helps. Saying all the very best. Staying with cats, we have a new addition, not to our household, but to the environment. Gary mm -hmm. the cat moved in. I say cat, kitten, moved in about 10 days ago and has yet to leave. And I don't blame this kitten because we keep on feeding it. Now, I posted a photo on Instagram. I was like, this is Gary the garage cat. Uh, he's getting bolder, only to be told by a vet within a minute, that's not a boy cat because it's, it's got three colours. So apparently it's very... It's a female. It's a fe What's this about? It's a genetic thing. Uh, so basically, uh, uh, at least in French, we call it uh, uh, tortoise color. Um, those colors, those, those three colors, uh, it cannot happen uh, in, in male cats. It just happens on females. Amazing. I showed you a photo of Gary. She's cute, right? Yeah. How old would you say she is? Well, on, over the photo, I, don't, I, I couldn't say more than... Uh, on the one that I saw, looks mm -hmm. a bit smaller than that. So I could say uh, maybe two months as most. So here's my question. <laughs> no disrespect to Gary... I don't want a cat. Okay, we've got two dogs. The one of the, the one of the dogs has smelt this cat on my clothes, and I think wants blood. Okay, <laughs> I'm not joking. Lucy was not enjoying this at all. Um, I'm very happy to take Gary to the vet, have vaccination. I think she probably has worms, given how much she wants to eat, and then trap neuter release. <laughs> Can this cat just continue to kind of live around our garage? We don't have to invite her into the house, do we? Many do. I mean, okay. uh, the very first thing, I believe you said it perfectly, we need to, to take care of the health, so vaccination, the warming, those are the very first things. Uh, spaying on this case, because again, I believe we need to be responsible and, and trying to avoid that we have a spread uh, of this animal. So again, uh, feeding, coming in and out. Yeah, I, honestly, I don't think it's such a bad option for the simple reason. In many countries, it happens. It mm -hmm. happens on this one. The animal is going to be healthy. You are, you are taking care of the cat already. And again, you cannot have it at home. Listen, we at least we're doing something. We have a new pet. My husband came in, came in this morning. He's like, so what are we doing about this cat? And I was like, I don't know. It was never part Other of the Other option is including on the family. Because again, I mean, the, 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 the beautiful surprises that sometimes are, are like mistakes or something that is not wanting. Finally, they are the most wanted. We, are, we have been chosen. However, if anyone wants a kitten called Gary... <laughs> 4001 You can open an Instagram for him Do you know what? I probably should Do you know what? I might say I can ask producer Chloe We can put a picture of, of Gary On our Instagram stories That's, She is a cutie I'm just allergic 
which actually <laughs> you have a solution to. I do. Oh man, I've I got do. No something excuse. Go uh, on. people, people, many people didn't know, but by controlling the food of the cat, you can do something already. Uh, Purina has cer- certain things uh, that they may help, but as well, there's the option of auto vaccines. So if you go to your uh, to your doctor, allergologist. And you tell them your issue, they sometimes are able to create an auto-vaccine that actually is going to get rid of your allergies. This is not helping my argument for not keeping Gary. You have a new member on the family, (laughs) so that's super good. (laughs) Dr. Mendoza with us. We've got a message about a pooping cavapoo. uh, And also, speaking of senior pets, Duncan's got a dog called Slink, whose selective hearing is getting out of control. Could Slink be going deaf? Any tips? This is Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan. Dogs Mendoza in the studio from Pet Pavilion. Um, and we're, we've got a number of questions for you. I mean, there's no such thing as a boring day when you're a vet, well, is there? Ahead. You're just there sending a voice note, you know, it's like, it's go, go, go. Um, Duncan's been in touch. We were just talking about senior dogs, saying, Hi guys, my dog Slink great name, um, is almost 14 and over the last couple of months I'm starting to get the feeling his hearing is on the decline. Don't get me wrong, there's always been a bit of selective hearing but this is different. He used to hear me coming down the hallway um, and used to be I couldn't touch my keys without him skidding down. Now I can grab them off the hook, jingle them and he'll stay in his bed. Any tips for dealing with deafness in a senior dog? He is a bit old to be teaching him signs. Um, I don't think he's been around for many more years but anything to consider to make life easier would be helpful. 14 year old Slink. Well, with 14-year-old, there's not much that we are going to do besides uh, making a comfortable lifestyle. The only thing that I would take, though, is that uh, that, that deafness, because be- becoming deaf can be many reasons. Sometimes it can be an infection, can be a neurological issue. Um, sometimes can be uh, just related to the age because there's a, ter- a deterioration of the, of the organs related to, to the hearing. But uh, if there's an infection, we need to treat it regardless. Uh, normally we're going to see how it smells. So we, we should smell the ears. We can see if there's a little bit of discharge and also if he has fever. Mm-hmm. But in case it's not one uh, the infection reason, what I would do is trying to make his life as easy as we can. Um, something, for example, when we try to approach uh, to to him, um, try to, to, to tell that we are somehow trying not to come just from the back so they don't get stressed, uh, trying, for example, uh, that, the, that the room sort area had good lighting so he's able to see the very best that that he can, mm-hmm. because once one sense is not working, at least we work on the other ones. That makes sense. Um, sometimes we don't know if they are really deaf or they just just as they say, like Maybe selective hearing, or a bit old and tired. So that could be one of the reasons. So, so we could take it again if they if they are keen to do some activities in case they are not. Well, maybe we can think that uh, that uh, it could be deafness that this is starting. But the most important thing is just to make him as comfortable as we can, and really trying to see uh, again that that if the the things that we are doing is not bothering him. Yeah. Something that they do, they usually bark a lot, or because they don't hear themselves. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so some some things to look and hear out for there, Duncan. All the very best and. Shout out to all your senior pets. Uh, We've got time for one last question, just a quick one here from Mary saying, my cat seems to have lost her voice. Any ideas why still eating and drinking as normal and is playful? I mean, I'm desperate to get you and and your cat on the phone, Mary, but uh, what comes to mind here, Dr. Mendoza? So to this about the senses, okay. Um, About about the cat losing the the voice, again, can be several reasons. Most of uh, the usual reasons can be is when we paralyze the vocal cords, the the phonation uh, area. Normally, it's because of the laryngeal recurrent uh, uh, nerve issue. The only way that we have uh, of knowing that actually is just doing an endoscopy. 
Um, we cannot assess inside. Uh, sometimes there are other tests that we can try to do, trying to stimulate uh, uh, to do the phonation. Mm -hmm. But if they don't want to, they are not going to. I'm assuming that they, that, that, that cat usually uh, does those uh, uh, sounds and that cat is not doing them anymore. So the only way that I could assess is doing a, uh, do, doing a, a laryngoscopy uh, or endoscopy. And then sometimes we can even uh, stimulate the nerve with a little bit of electricity and see if those uh, um, arytenoids are moving or not. Okay. Hope that helps. Dr. Mendoza, where can we find you in real life and online, of course? So in real life, <laughs> you can find me in, in Pet Pavilion, we're in Abu Dhabi. Uh, we have a, a veterinary facility, but as well we have physiotherapy, we have uh, hydrotherapy, uh, we have daycare, boarding, retail, grooming, and even a pet taxi. So just ah, so all the services in one. So please feel free to contact us and on Instagram, uh, petpavilion.ae. And also in the website, petpavilion.ae, you can find us. And whenever you need something, just let us know and we'll be happy. You are a superstar. Dr. Mendoza, thank you so much Thanks for you. your time. Expect some messages about Gary. <laughs> <laughs> Still not sure if I'm keeping that cat. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.